well, we're not just trying to build a brand. We're, we're trying to build a movement. And it's a movement not for zealots. It's a movement for citizens who care about their food and about what they eat and how it's grown and about integrity of government and honesty and transparency. These are very, very basic issues. We need to become more informed. We can't be passive eaters and we can't be passive farmers. We need to understand what the issues are. Farmers have to appreciate the political issues that they deal with. And eaters need to appreciate the biological issues that they deal with. If they want the food that I think will make them healthier and that will be better for the planet, they're going to have to be informed and make sure that whatever the label is, that it's representing what they want. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, there are farmers in this world, and then there are kind of uh, crusaders, if you will, with a cause and an issue, and sometimes those things combine. And my two guests today, I, I view them that way. I'm going to let them argue if they don't want to consider themselves kind of crusaders or promoters or people with a vision who also farm. And I'm really happy to welcome Dave Chapman. And Dave, you've been on one of my podcasts before, and Francis Thick. And Francis, um, I don't think you've been on yet, but I'm really happy to have you both here together. And Dave, you live in Vermont, right? Yes, that's right, right. And Francis lives in Southeast Iowa. Francis, how do you find time to get on the podcast with me when you still got some, probably some planting left to do, don't you? Yeah, a little bit. And I'm, I'm actually waking here. I just shut my tractor off to, to take a break here. Oh, um, well. Make, making a lot of hay. So that tractor is driving around. What are you pulling? A planter yet? Have you gone from corn just, to soybeans? Well, we we have to do a little bit of replanting of some beans. That um, we did a, a roll down cover crop of rye, and it looks like maybe some onion worms got in there. So I, I have to assess the damage first. Oh, I didn't. Uh, I, well, I'm interested in rye, and actually, I was down in Kentucky. They make some distilled rye down there that I tried, and I was curious about <laughs> the origin. And in <laughs> fact, funny thing, when I was checking this out, like the the, the rye whiskey at this uh, New Riff um, Distillery, and they're importing their rye from Belgium. So I'm trying to get them to to look closer to home. So I don't know if you you object, but. Maybe we could send them to Iowa to pick up rye. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Dave, you and I have talked a little bit before about the Real Organic Project. And you and Francis are very engaged with that. And in fact, what caught my attention to chase you two down today was that you went in to talk to Secretary Vilsack at the USDA. I wanted you to tell that story. Why'd you go? Uh, what were you hoping for? Uh, where were you coming from? What's your what's your vision? What causes uh, a farmer in Vermont and a farmer in Iowa to spend so much time and actually travel to Washington on an idea, on an approach? Explain that, and we'll pull Francis into this too. Sure. Well, I can say from my perspective, first, I, I would say uh, Crusader sounds a bit grandiose. I would prefer citizen farmer in the Jeffersonian tradition. Okay, and uh, I think in the America that 
that Thomas Jefferson imagined, um, and I don't agree with everything he imagined, but you know, he did imagine a country of farmers who were engaged in in government. And um, I think we went to, we didn't go to Washington. We met with Secretary Vilsack virtually because we decided I'd, we'd rather see each other's faces than see each other's masks. So oh, no. we did it on a Zoom call. It was the result of a letter that Francis really was the main organizer of among many, uh, many former members. I think we have 43 people to sign who were former members of this advisory board to the USDA on organic. And they all said, Houston, we got a problem. And the fact that the majority of living former members said we got a problem, uh, I think caught Secretary Vilsack's attention. And, and we said, let's have a meeting and talk about it. And we did. And the Real Organic Project, which, which both Francis and I are involved with, is not really a government reform organization. That's not the point of our effort. We really were created because we felt that the reform efforts had were failing and would probably continue to fail. Having abandoned government, I think we should keep trying to reform it. But I think we also can't wait for government to fix the problems. We we need to act and fix them ourselves. So we're trying to create a, a way of, of having transparency and integrity in a certifying body so that people who care about that kind of food and farmers who want to grow it can find each other and be connected. What there is today started with a vision. I don't know, Francis, were you around in the the early days before organics could be certified by the USDA? Yes, actually, I started farming organically in 1975 in Minnesota. And then there were a lot of individual independent certifying organizations. And they didn't all agree on everything, all the standards. Pretty well they did, but there was some disagreement. And so... The organic community kind of got together over the years and thought if we we should have a unified standard. We all know what the standards are, and we should just get together and we should agree on them. And then that was the basis for the 1990 in you know, the the uh, Farm Bill, the Organic Food Production Act, which created the National Organic Program. Now the problem is um, that the farmers have sort of lost a voice. It was it was really. Um, envisioned as a partnership between organic farmers, organic community, I guess you'd say, and um, USDA. But over the years, uh, USDA has sort of kind of pulled the reins away from the farmers, and we've lost the influence that we, we should have had. And so we're struggling with that. For, again, before it was established, and I remember those days too, before it was established, it was really the Wild West. I mean, almost anybody could call anything organic if they chose to, right? Sort of like natural and some of the other things that, um, and except with some states, I think some states had some some guidelines, but before the USDA program, um, there just wasn't any discipline or structure or, or rules. Am I, I wrong? I'm wrong. I, I don't agree with that, Roger. Okay. I, I think it wasn't the Wild West. I think that every region had a group that believed in organic and that was trying to certify it for people who cared in that region. And the actual differences between the standards from one state or region to another were, were actually very slight. Now, I, I asked somebody who was a, 
uh, a longtime pioneer in all this, very involved in certification. She's an inspector. And I said, do you think that there's greater integrity now than there was in the old days with, with this much more rigorous process? And she said, no. And, and I think that's true. So I would say we're in the Wild West right now oh. where, where we've got some, some bad players getting certified and we're struggling to make sense of that. Ah, okay. Well, I but, really appreciate your pointing that out. Yeah. And I, I wonder what does, one thing that happens, I suppose, is the program started getting successful and people started buying organic. Uh, so I, I would imagine that some of these players coming in that are in to make a buck, and I'm not against making a buck. Uh, certainly, you guys probably want to be profitable most of the time if you can. But when you start attracting and saying, hmm, this is a big market, people want to buy organic, then it, it seems almost predictable that more and more will be crowding in and saying, well, how they could take advantage of it and how they could be able to, you know, I suppose larger organizations don't necessarily come to it with the same passion that you did originally. I think you hit on a really good point. It's that when organic was just small scale and off the screen and the scientists and others were trying to dismiss it, then it didn't, it wasn't a big issue. We were more in charge. But suddenly now, um, organic is a $50 billion a year plus industry. And so the big food players want a piece of it. And, and to me, they not only want a piece of the pie, but they want the whole pie. And in some cases, they're really getting it um, in like hydroponic uh, vegetables and in um, some of the dairy uh, confinement operations. And so that's what brought all these in. And of course, they want to sell organic food as, as easily as they can, do as little work as possible. And so they may want to see the standards weakened. And we're seeing that, that the influence of industry is weakening the organic standards. And those standards are have been uh, set well by the USDA. There's been hearings and testimony and so forth, and the regulations are in effect. But they're also supposedly guided by a, a committee that advises the USDA. Isn't that right? It's called the National Organic Standards Board. It's appointed, their members are appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. And, and that board represents the organic community. Um, it's supposed to, anyhow. Uh, it has like four farmers on it. It has environmentalists, scientists. It has uh, processors and so on, grocery store representatives. So it has a broad representation of the organic community. However, from my perspective, oftentimes USDA has appointed people who didn't really fit the bill and maybe didn't understand organics. Um, we had industry representatives put in farmer seats. As a matter of fact, in the last farm bill, um, Congress changed the law so that now industry representatives can be in the pharmacy. And so you can see that the farmers are losing what influence we've had in the past. But it isn't really, we can't put all of the blame on the National Organic Standards Board. Um, it really is USDA that has been allowing the standards to weaken by not requiring strict enforcement of the grazing rule, for example, for dairy farms, by allowing hydroponics to be certified organic kind of through a backdoor process. And so it's really USDA that is causing us the problem today. Give us some examples of that, would you? Uh, I, I know that you've talked about hydroponics a lot and that it's not soil-based. I've known in some of your information, I've seen you talking about uh, CAFOs, the confined animal feeding operations. Could you give us a couple of examples of in what way that it's gotten kind of loosened and sliding down the hill the wrong direction? 
why don't I give an example of hydroponics and Francis can do CAFOs because they're both they're both big deal. It, hydroponics is a big deal in vegetables and berries, and which is you might say one of the main entry points into organic for for a lot of eaters. At this point, hydroponics are becoming the norm in organic tomatoes sold in supermarkets. And they're quickly taking over in peppers and in greens and in blueberries. So these things, there's no, there's no sign on the, on the produce. There's no sign on the berries that they're grown without soil, but they are. And, you know, they get all of their feed from a uh, nutrition from a liquid feed. And it's, it's really the, the opposite, Roger, of what organic means. Organic means that the farmer feeds the soil, not the plant. They're, they're working on building up this amazing biological diversity in the soil, which in, in turn will nourish the plant. And a hydroponic producer has the opposite philosophy. And you might say they're right, but th then you shouldn't call it organic. Let's call it hydroponic. And they're saying, we know exactly what to give the plant. And we don't need any stinking soil and we're going to just feed the plant. And that was, you know, that's kind of the conventional chemical perspective. And hydro has just taken it sort of to the ultimate, ultimate position. One question about hydro. Hydro can be soil-based though too, can it? I mean, I don't know hydro, but I mean, you can, you can grow things in soil in a greenhouse, for example. I do. That's then you do. So it's, and it's not, but it's, it's in soil. It's not what we call a substrate, which yes. just, you know, you just use irrigation to, to be able to, you know, pump in what you're guessing the nutrients are, but it's not soil based. So it's not, again, I'm making a big deal out of this, I guess, but it's not just that there's a roof on it. It's that it's not based in soil. Yes. Lo lots of hydroponic production doesn't have a roof on it. So you'll see lots of blueberry production now, and there are thousands of acres of certified organic blueberry production in America now. And it's growing out in the field on a, on a sheet of black plastic. Um, so it's not, it's not uh, grown in protected environment. It's just hydroponic. Yeah. One of the things I wonder about, about now is, you know, here I'm, I'm in California and you're in Vermont and, and actually uh, Francis is in Iowa. You guys got a lot more water than we do. And because we're going into one of the worst droughts we've ever had right now, we think we may have up to a million acres that will be fallow this year. And with that, all the fruits and vegetables are going to have to be grown somewhere. So I would think that they'll be looking at systems to take it back where the water is because there's still going to be a demand. So someplace is going to have to grow it. Well, we'd be happy to. <laughs> well, get ready. <laughs> you know, right now, California is growing most of the fruits and vegetables in America, and they might not be well suited for that. So, uh, you know, and it might be that if people want to grow in California, maybe it's going to be like Mars, and they're going to need to grow to hydroponics. And that, if that's what they need to do, that's what they'll do. We just shouldn't call that organic. Right. Francis, he left CAFOs for you. Uh, well, one of the issues is that um, the organic standards require uh, ruminants to have 30% of their dry matter from grazing during the growing season. Hmm. And um, we've seen operations that are 5,000 pounds or more in one place. 
where those of us who graze cows know that that can't work out right, um, especially in the desert, like some of the conditions are. And and so um, there's been a lot of lax enforcement of that rule. As a matter of fact, the Washington Post did an expose on that, and they went to these farms, um, these large CAFOs, dairy CAFOs that were selling organic milk, and they um, did not see any cows outside. And for days at a time, days and days, very few cows. And so we know there's a problem there. And, and more and more of the organic milk is coming from these capos. Uh, for example, there are six big capos in Texas selling organic milk that produce more milk than all the organic farms together in Wisconsin. So it's almost like hydroponics that that industrial model is growing and taking over the market. And egg production as well. The rules say that chickens have to have access to the outdoors, poultry. And uh, some of these huge operations have just a little concrete porch, sometimes in the second floor. And um, that's that's um, what they call access to the outdoors. There may be a door and the chickens may never find it. But um, And so, as a matter of fact, we should follow up on that a little more because the organic community got together and worked on for 10 years uh, work some animal welfare standards. And it not only covered poultry, but hogs and, and you know, all the issues in, in animal welfare. And they were all passed by the NOSB, National Organic Managers Board. And the USDA, during the Obama administration, had put it forward to, to be up, to be in effect. Well, when the next administration came in, they canceled it. But we know from the information from the National Organic Program's director that 75% of the eggs that are labeled organic would, would not qualify for organic under those animal welfare standards. And so you can see how far off we are on, on doing it right. And of course, now um, the current secretary, um, uh, Secretary Vilsack, told us they're going to reopen that and restudy the issue. So we're not going to go and pass them. We're going to, it's going to go through another year's long um, reassessment. And we know what that means. We know that that means that the, the big industry is going to have um, their influence in there, and these standards are not likely to come out nearly as strong as they, they were written in it originally. So, so Francis, did you say that the CAFOs are to be organic, that they're supposed to have, you say, 30% of their um, nutrition needs their are to be by grazing for cows, obviously? Yes, during, during the growing season, yeah, at, at a minimum. You know, on my farm, I probably am at, at 80%, 70 to 80% or more of the diet comes from cows grazing. Large, and so large scale, a, a true grazing farm can do that easily. Yeah, but our, our large, large-scale dairies, like we got so many of them out here in California, fewer than we used to have, but quite a quite a few. They're all dry lot. I mean, you know, there's I I don't know if they ever get to step on grass. Um, yeah, most cows are on, on dry lot. Yes, and so none of those, by definition, should be able to qualify for organic. Is that right? Well, they don't. Most of those are conventional, but there are okay. some organic ones that that on paper they are meeting the grazing rule. But in reality, we don't think they are, and we don't have access to that, and, and we don't think that the certified, the accredited certifying organizations that are certifying them mm-hmm. are really doing their job rigorously. So, what about hogs? I mean, they don't really, they don't really graze per se, but the same thing. Well, they hogs. can, they can graze. People have them grazing, yeah. um, but they they need to have access to the outdoors, and and many organic. Um, Hogs are in these hoop houses, these deep bedded sure. hoop houses. Sure. So, um, so there's no advantage to that over a people. 
So your message when you were finally able to get Secretary Vilsack, was it to suggest to them that it is time to, to tighten it up and modify it and revisit it and get a better focus so that it's back to its original intent? I would say it was a little more uh, passionate than that. It was a bit of a Hail Mary pass saying, and I did say to him that Secretary Vilsack, the problems that the National Organic Program faces are so profound that if you don't step in now and make a significant concerted effort to bring this back to the law, to the Organic Food Production Act and the original intention, it's not going to work and we're going to lose it. So I said, you know, it's up to you. You're, you're the last hope because really you're the only person in the world who has the power to do this. So what do you say to that? He said, be patient and we're working on all this. And uh, we think we're doing a pretty good job on pasture already. And uh, he said, animal welfare is going to have to go back to square one to be studied. It was, it was not encouraging to me. It was fine. You know, he was saying, you know, rub a lamp, but, but he was saying it in the nicest possible way. But what I heard was that the USDA is not going to solve this problem and that we, the people, are going to have to do it on our own. We tried to have the government do this and protect the eaters and the farmers so that people could get what they wanted to get. And the government is failing at that. And I did not hear the leader of the USDA say that he was going to change that. I did not hear that. Francis, did you hear that? No, the, the more I think about the results of that. I mean, as Dave said, uh, Secretary Vilsack was very knowledgeable and very polite and very, he listened carefully. But he also said he has to listen to everyone else. And we know what that means. We know that the industry is going to continue to have their, their influence. and. Um, Frankly, there were a lot of reasons he gave why he can't do much, and I was not encouraged. You know, Francis, he's an Iowegian too. I mean, he's uh, he's been around. He was the he was the governor, and you know, he's he was knows all about the hog farms and poultry farms, and long before he went in as secretary. So he's had twenty, thirty years to warm up to this need. I would think so. I'm. I, but I, I rest, I'm happy to hear that he was uh, considerate and thoughtful and listening to you. And I, I'm not surprised. I've met him before and found him to be uh, a gentleman that, that pays attention and listens. But I, I also suspect you're right, Dave, that he's going to be listening to a lot of people. And you know, while you guys got him on Zoom, there's still a bunch of people in Washington that are against what you're trying to do. And, and so his people are going to be hearing from them a lot, too. They have them on speed dial. The The thing is that, you know, what became very clear is that the problem is not personal. Yeah, It's not, gosh, if we could only get a, a different person to be Secretary of Agriculture. And, and Francis actually was the one who told me a story. He heard Fred Kirshenman on stage one day and somebody in the audience said, well, Fred, what would you do if you were the Secretary of Agriculture? And Fred said, well, that all depends on how long I want to stay Secretary of Agriculture. And the point being, it doesn't matter what you as a person would do. If you do the wrong things, you won't be in that position for long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
You know, I remember years ago when Ann Veneman was Secretary of Agriculture, and she kind of stuck her neck out early on and was making a lot of statements about going directions that you guys are talking about. And she had so many people in agriculture after her. They finally kind of almost chased her out. It was really sad to see because I thought she was really sticking her neck out and trying to take some bold positions. And before long, we had a different Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. That's exactly right. So what happens given that? I mean, they're not going to be solving all the problems that you're identifying. Are you guys seeing a path forward now? You know, a group of farmers began the Real Organic Project somewhat, uh, you know, in despair that that it just appeared that reform was was doomed. You know, in three years, uh, we're now approaching and we, we will hit by December 1,000 farms certified. And that number is going to continue to grow. And as that label, it's an add-on label. So we are uh, requiring USDA certification as a prerequisite. But on top of that, if in fact you feel that the USDA label does not represent your farming, if you feel that, well, I'm not a CAFO, my cows do go out on pasture, or my chickens do go outside every day, or I'm actually growing my tomatoes or my blueberries in the soil, then this label makes sense for you. And if if the eater says, that's actually the food I want to buy, that's why I buy organic in the first place, then this label will make sense for that person as well. So it's going to be a marketing strategy then. It is, but I would really stress that a label is not going to save us. A brand is not going to do it. We can't invent a brand that they won't steal. That's just life, you know, that if it's if the brand is successful, then people who want to make money will come in. And that's why we're having conversations like this, Roger. We need to we need to become more informed. We can't be passive eaters and we can't be passive farmers. We need to understand what the issues are. Farmers have to appreciate the political issues that they deal with and eaters need to appreciate the biological issues that they deal with. If they want the food that I think will make them healthier and that will be better for the planet, they're going to have to be informed and make sure that whatever the label is, that it's representing what they want. So I see us as primarily an educational effort. Yeah, I agree that it's not just marketing. I mean, in my case, I have a dairy farm and I process my milk on the farm and sell it locally. So I probably wouldn't even need to be certified organic because the people know what we do and they trust what we do. Um, but it's a matter of integrity that many of us organic farmers from from decades ago, we, we don't want to see this this organic, I don't want to say brand, we don't want to see the organic integrity uh, lost because we work so hard to create it. And it's so important that we, we grow our food in that way, looking at climate change and so on. And we know consumers want to have that food and they don't want to be bamboozled uh, with some marketing campaign that's, that's not um, honest. It's a new frontier that you're describing, you know, because you have organic and I, I, I like it that you're not just saying, well, instead of organic and trying to take away from organic, but you're adding to it. It's an, an enhancer for people that come to understand that this is preferred. They either prefer it because they envision that it's healthier for them or healthier for the planet or, um, you know, a better structure of agriculture. I suppose a lot of different reasons. 
that a consumer can decide that they would want to uh, look at real organic when they're buying the food. Yeah, it's not a matter of adding to it. It's a matter of really restoring the integrity that was originally there. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I agree completely, Francis. We're not we're not inventing organic plus. We're just trying to get back to organic. It's not that we're saying, well, let's go to organic 2.0. We're just trying to get back to organic 1.0 because right now we're organic minus. And you know, when I say, well, we're not just trying to build a brand. We're we're trying to build a movement, and it's a movement not for zealots. It's a movement for citizens who care about their food and about what they eat and how it's grown and about integrity of government and honesty and transparency. These are very, very basic issues. I like what you're saying. It's still hard for me to quite envision because that future means that some people that are in the tent would be outside of it. They're not in my tent, Roger. (laughs) Hydroponics, uh, hydroponic organic exists. And there are CAFOs that are using the organic label currently too. And so it seems like the future that you're describing to me doesn't have room for them. Well, we invite them in, but they have to find, follow the real standards. I mean, we're not trying to be exclusive. We're trying to restore it and anybody can do it if they do it according to real organic standards. I really admire what you're doing and that you've, um, and also I think that, uh, you know, having your conversation with Secretary Vilsack and, and kind of sizing it up, that they're not necessarily, you can't wait on them to solve the problem for you. You're moving ahead with this program. Well, you've got a thousand farmers already signed up. Have you had any experience with people that are saying that they've had to make some modifications in their own production system? I mean, that, that maybe uh, we're a little over the line, but are have made changes to the production system to be sure that they fit with what you're doing. Dave, maybe you'll answer that question better. See, we really think that most organic farmers are real organic farmers. But yeah. the, the, the fraud is the big players, the huge players. And so most of these farmers that we're signing up, basically doing it right. I, I don't think that's a big issue. For people that want to know more about the real organic, either, you know, both consumers uh, that they're wanting to understand more or others that are involved with the food system or farmers that want to figure out how they may become one of the thousand or the, the next thousand, how do they find out more about you? Well, basically our website is realorganicproject.org and you can just Search it, Google it, and find us. And and this real simple application. It's not that difficult, and it's really no cost to the farmers. We're operating on donations from foundations and so on. So there's no cost to farmers to do it. And so um, any you know anyone can look into that, and, and we encourage people to uh, to sign up because we want to get a critical mass so that consumers can find us in the store, find our label. We have a logo now, and it's on my products. And so um. Consumers want to find it, and we want to produce you know, real organic food. Well, I think we have some people listening that either want to grow or want to, want to be trying it out and purchase it. So I appreciate your taking the time, and we've been talking to Dave Chapman and Francis Thick. And uh, Francis, get back on a tractor now. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us. At-